Chapter One, Part One of the Subjection of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paradise Camouflage. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill. Chapter One, Part One. The object of this essay is to explain as clearly as I am able grounds of an opinion which I have held from the very earliest period when I had formed any opinions at all on social-political matters, and which, instead of being weakened or modified, has been constantly growing stronger by the progress, reflection, and the experience of life. That the principle which regulates the existing social relations between the two sexes the legal subordination of one sex to the other is wrong itself, and now one of the chief hindrances to human improvement, and that it ought to be replaced by a principle of perfect equality, admitting no power or privilege on the one side, nor disability on the other. The very words necessary to express the task I have undertaken show how arduous it is, but it would be a mistake to suppose that the difficulty of the case must lie in the insufficiency or obscurity of the grounds of reason on which my convictions. The difficulty is that which exists in all cases in which there is a mass of feeling to be contended against. So long as opinion is strongly rooted in the feelings, it gains rather than loses in stability, by having a preponderating weight of argument against it. For, if it were accepted as a result of argument, the refutation of the argument might shake the solidity of the conviction. But when it rests solely on feeling, worse it fares in argumentative contest, the more persuaded adherents are that their feeling must have some deeper ground which the arguments do not reach. And while the feeling remains, it is always throwing up fresh entrenchments of argument to repair any breach made in the old. And there are so many causes tending to make the feelings connected with this subject the most intense and most deeply rooted of those which gather around and protect old institutions and custom, that we need not wonder to find them as yet less undetermined and loosened than any of the rest by the progress the great modern spiritual and social transition nor suppose that the barbarisms to which men cling longest must be less barbarisms than those which they earlier shake off. In every respect the burthen is hard on those who attack an almost universal opinion. They must be very fortunate, well as unusually capable, if they obtain a hearing at all. They have more difficulty in obtaining a trial than any other litigants have in getting a verdict. If they do extort a hearing, they are subjected to a set of logical requirements totally different from those exacted from other people. In all other cases, burthen of proof is supposed to lie with the affirmative. If a person is charged with a murder, it rests with those who accuse him to give proof of his guilt, not with him to prove his innocence. If there is a difference of opinion about the reality of an alleged historical event, in which the feelings of men general are not much interested, as the Siege of Troy example, those who maintain that the event took place expected to produce their proofs before those who take the other side can be required to say anything. 
and at no time these require to do more than show that the evidence produced by the others is of no value. Again, in practical matters, the burden of proof is supposed to be with those who are against liberty, who contend for any restriction or prohibition, either any limitation of the general freedom of human action, or any disqualification or disparity of privilege affecting one person or kind of persons, as compared with others. The a priori presumption is in favour of freedom and impartiality. It is held that there should be no restraint not required by the general good, and that the law should be no respecter of persons, but should treat all alike, save where dissimilarity of treatment is required by positive reasons, either of justice or of policy. But of none of these rules of evidence will the benefit be allowed to those who maintain the opinion I profess. It is useless of me to say that those who maintain the doctrine that men have a right to command and women are under an obligation to obey, or that men are fit for government and women unfit, on the affirmative side of the question, and that they are bound to show positive evidence for the assertions or submit to their rejection. It is equally unavailing to say that those who deny to women any freedom or privilege rightly allowed to men having the double presumption against them that they are opposing freedom and recommending partiality, must be held to the strictest proof of their case, and unless their success be such as to exclude all doubt, the judgment ought to be against them. This would be thought good pleas in any common case, but they will not be thought so in this instance. Before I could hope to make any impression, I should be expected not only to answer all that has ever been said by those who take the other side of the question, but to imagine that could be said by them. Define them in reasons, as I as answer all I find, and besides refuting all arguments for the affirmative, I shall be called upon for invincible positive arguments to prove a negative. And even if I could do all and leave the opposite party with a host of unanswered arguments against them, and not a single unrefuted one on side, I should be thought to have done little, for a cause supported on the one hand by universal usage, and on the other by so great a preponderance of popular sentiment, is supposed to have a presumption in its favour, superior to any conviction which an appeal to reason has power to produce in intellects but those of a high class. I do not mention these difficulties to complain of them. First, use it would be useless. They are inseparable from having to contend through people's misunderstandings against the hostility their feelings and practical tendencies, and truly the understandings of the majority of mankind would need to be much better cultivated than has ever yet been the case, before they be asked to place such reliance in their own power of estimating arguments, as to give up practical principles in which have been born and bred, and which are the basis of much existing order of the world, at the first argumentative attack, which they are not capable of logically resisting. I do not therefore quarrel with them for having too little faith in argument, but for having too much faith in custom and the general feeling. It is one of the characteristic prejudices of the ion of the nineteenth century against the eighteenth, to accord to the unreasoning elements in human nature the infallibility 
which the eighteenth century is supposed to have ascribed to the reasoning elements. For the apotheosis of reason we have substituted that of instinct, and we call thing instinct which we find in ourselves and for which we cannot trace any rational foundation. This idolatry, infinitely more degrading than the other, and the most pernicious of the false worships of the present day, all of which it is the main support, will probably hold its ground until it weigh before a sound psychology laying bare the real root of much that is bowed down to as the intention of nature and ordinance of God. As regards the present question, I am going to accept the unfavourable conditions which the prejudice assigns to me. I consent that established custom and the general feelings should be deemed conclusive against me, unless that custom and feeling from age to age can be shown to have owed their existence to other causes than their soundness, and to have derived their power from the worse rather than the better parts of human nature. I am willing that judgment should go against me, unless I can show that my judge has been tampered with. The concession is not so great as it might appear, for to prove this is by far the easiest portion of my task. The generality of a practice is, in some cases, a strong presumption that it is, or at all events once was, conducive to laudable ends. This is the case when the practice was first adopted, or afterwards kept up, as a means to such ends, and was grounded on experience of the mode in which they could be most effectually attained. If the authority of men over women, when first established, had been the result of a conscientious comparison between different modes of constituting the government of society, if, after trying various other modes of social organization, the government of women over men, equality between the two, and such mixed and divided modes of government as might be invented, it had been decided on the testimony of experience that the mode in which women are wholly under the rule of men, having no share at all in public concerns, and each in private being under the legal obligation of obedience to the man with whom she has associated her destiny, was the arrangement most conducive to the happiness and well-being of both, its general adoption might then have been fairly thought to be some evidence that, at the time when it was adopted, it was the best, though even then the considerations which recommended it may, like so many other primeval social facts of the greatest importance, have subsequently, in the course of ages, ceased to exist. But the state of the case is in every respect the reverse of this. In the first place, the opinion in favour of the present system, which entirely subordinates the weaker sex to the stronger, rests upon theory only, for there never has been trial made of any other, so that experience, in the sense in which it is vulgarly opposed to theory, cannot be pretended to have pronounced any verdict. And in the second place, the adoption of this system of inequality, never was the result of deliberation, or forethought of any social ideas, or any notion whatever of what conduced to the benefit of humanity or the good order of society. It arose simply from the fact that, from the very earliest twilight of human society, 
every woman, owing to the value attached to her by men, combined with her inferiority in muscular strength, was found in a state of bondage to some man. Laws and systems of polity always begin by recognizing the relations they find already existing between individuals. They convert what was a mere physical fact into a legal right, give it the sanction of society, and principally aim at the substitution of public and organized means of asserting and protecting these rights, instead of the irregular and lawless conflict of physical strength. Those who had already been compelled to obedience became in this manner legally bound to it. Slavery, from being a mere affair of force between the master and the slave, became regularized and a matter of compact among the masters, who, binding themselves to one another for common protection, guaranteed by their collective strength the private possessions of each, including his slaves. In early times, the great majority of the male sex were slaves, as well as the whole of the female, and many ages elapsed, some of them ages of high cultivation, before any thinker was bold enough to question the rightfulness and the absolute social necessity, either of the one slavery or of the other. By degrees such thinkers did arise, and the general progress of society assisting, the slavery of the male sex has, in all the countries of Christian Europe at least, though in one of them only within the last few years, been at length abolished, and that of the female sex has been gradually changed into a milder form of dependence. But this dependence, as it exists at present, is not an original institution, taking a fresh start from considerations of justice and social expediency. It is the primitive state of slavery lasting on, through successive mitigations and modifications occasioned by the same causes which have softened the general manners and brought all human relations more under the control of justice and the influence of humanity. It has not lost the taint of its brutal origin. No presumption in its favour, therefore, can be drawn from the fact of its existence. The only such presumption which it could be supposed to have must be grounded on its having lasted till now, when so many other things which came down from the same odious source have been done away with. And this, indeed, is what makes it strange to ordinary ears to hear it asserted that the inequality of rights between men and women has no other source than the law of the strongest. That this statement should have the effect of a paradox is in some respects creditable to the progress of civilization and the improvement of the moral sentiments of mankind. We now live, that is to say, one or two of the most advanced nations in the world now live, in a state in which the law of the strongest seems to be entirely abandoned as the regulating principle of the world's affairs. Nobody professes it, and, as regards most of the relations between human beings, nobody is permitted to practice it. When anyone succeeds in doing so, it is under cover of some pretext which gives him the semblance 
of having some general social interest on his side. This being the ostensible state of things, people flatter themselves that the rule of mere force is ended, that the law of the strongest cannot be the reason of existence of anything which has remained in full operation down to the present time. However any of our present institutions may have begun, it can only, they think, have been preserved to this period of advanced civilization by a well-grounded feeling of its adaptation to human nature and conduciveness to the greater good. They do not understand the great vitality and durability of institutions which place right on the side of might, how intensely they are clung to, how the good as well as the bad propensities and sentiments of those who have power in their hands become identified with retaining it. How slowly these bad institutions give way, one at a time, the weakest first, beginning with those which are least interwoven with the daily habits of life, and how very rarely those who have obtained legal power because they first had physical have ever lost their hold of it until the physical power had passed over to the other side. Such shifting of the physical force not having taken place in the case of women, this fact, combined with all the peculiar and characteristic features of the particular case, made it certain from the first that this branch of the system of right, founded on might, though softened in its most atrocious features at an earlier period than several of the others, would be the very last to disappear. It was inevitable that this one case of a social relation grounded on force would survive through generations of institutions grounded on equal justice, an almost solitary exception to the general character of their laws and customs, but which, so long as it does not proclaim its own origin, and as discussion has not brought out its true character, is not felt to jar with modern civilization any more than domestic slavery amongst the Greeks jarred with their notion of themselves as a free people. The truth is that people of the present and the last two or three generations have lost all practical sense of the primitive condition of humanity, and only the few who have studied history accurately, or have much frequented the parts of the world occupied by the living representatives of ages long past, are able to form any mental picture of what society then was. People are not aware how entirely, in former ages, the law of superior strength was the rule of life, how publicly and openly it was avowed. I do not say cynically or shamelessly, for these words imply a feeling that there was something in it to be ashamed of, and no such notion could have found a place in the faculties of any person of those ages except a philosopher or a saint. History gives a cruel experience of human nature, in showing how exactly the regard due to the life, possessions, and entire earthly happiness of any class of persons was measured by what they had the power of enforcing. How all who made any resistance to authorities that had arms in their hands, however dreadful might be the provocation, had not only the law of force, but all other laws, and all the notions of social obligation against them, and in the eyes of those whom they resisted, were not only guilty of crime, but 
of the worst of all crimes, deserving the most cruel chastisement which human beings could inflict. The first small vestige of feeling of obligation in a superior to acknowledge any right in inferiors began when he had been induced for convenience to make some promise to them. Through these promises, even when sanctioned by the most solemn oaths, were for many ages revoked or violated on the most trifling provocation or temptation. It is probably that this, except by persons of still worse than the average morality, was seldom done without some twinges of conscience. The ancient republics, being mostly grounded from the first upon some kind of mutual compact, or at any rate formed by a union of persons not very unequal in strength, afforded in consequence the first instance of a portion of human relations fenced round, and placed under the dominion of another law than that of force. And though the original law of force remained in full operation between them and their slaves, and also, except so far as limited by express compact, between a commonwealth and its subject, or other independent commonwealths, the banishment of that primitive law, even from so narrow a field, commenced the regeneration of human nature, by giving birth to sentiments of which experience soon demonstrated the immense value even for material interests, and which thenceforward only required to be enlarged, not created. Though slaves were no part of the commonwealth, it was in the free states that slaves were first felt to have rights as human beings. The Stoics were, I believe, the first, except so far as the Jewish law constitutes an exception, who taught as a part of morality that men were bound by moral obligation to their slaves. No one, after Christianity became ascendant, could ever again have been a stranger to this belief, in theory. Nor, after the rise of the Catholic Church, was it ever without persons to stand up for it. Yet to enforce it was the most arduous task which Christianity ever had to perform. For more than a thousand years the Church kept up the contest with hardly any perceptible success. It was not for want of power over men's minds. Its power was prodigious. It could make kings and nobles resign their most valued possessions to enrich the Church. It could make thousands in the prime of life, in the height of worldly advantages, shut themselves up in convents to work out their salvation by poverty, fasting, and prayer. It could send hundreds of thousands across land and sea, Europe and Asia, to give their lives for the deliverance of the holy sepulchre. It could make kings relinquish wives who were the object of their passionate attachment, because the church declared that they were within the seventh, by our calculation, fourteenth degree of relationship. All this it did, but it could not make men fight less with one another, nor tyrannize less cruelly over the serfs, and when they were able, over burgesses. It could not make them renounce either of the applications of force, force militant or force triumphant. This they could never be induced to do until they were themselves in their turn compelled by superior force. Only by the growing power of kings was an end put to fighting 
except between kings or competitors for kingship. Only by the growth of a wealthy and warlike bourgeoisie in the fortified towns, and of a plebeian infantry which proved more powerful in the field than the undisciplined chivalry, was the insolent tyranny of the nobles over the bourgeoisie and peasantry brought within some bounds. It was persisted in not only until, but long after the oppressed had attained a power enabling them to take conspicuous vengeance, and on the continent much of it continued to the time of the French Revolution, though in England the earlier and better organization of the democratic classes put an end to it sooner, by establishing equal laws and free national institutions. End of chapter 1, part 1, read by Andy from Invernon, Scotland.